Hello and welcome to another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. The Irish are, without a doubt, one of the great migratory peoples of modern history, populating the Americas and Australasia in the millions for more than a hundred years, to such an extent that the population of Ireland today is less than it was over 150 years ago. Today, Ireland is one of the wealthiest nations in Europe, and migration to this part of the world has very much slowed down. My guest for this episode, John, grew up in the 1940s and 50s in Limerick, in the west of Ireland, in an era when Ireland was still something of a backwater, and many young Irish took the first opportunity to head to the UK and beyond. John also had a taste of travel at a young age, with trips to France and elsewhere in Europe. And in his 20s, he moved to London to work as an accountant in the travel industry. And this would be the first step of many wanderings and several different careers, which would take him to Montreal, Bermuda, Uganda, Sydney, and finally, Hobart. With such a long life and so many travels, John really has some tale to tell. I was born in Limerick, the third city of Ireland. And I grew up there until my middle 20s. And when you were growing up, what kind of place was Limerick? It's a town about the size of Launceston, but population at the time was about 50,000 people, considering that Tasmania is roughly 10% smaller than the Republic of Ireland. And Ireland at the time when I was growing up had about 4 million people compared to Tasmania's 500,000. So I feel quite comfortable here because there's an awful lot more space. We thought it was a big city, uh, but it was a small regional city, again, like Launceston for anybody who's been there. And it was a very conservative, industrial, partly industrial city, but very close to the countryside. So mm -hmm. Ireland, this we're talking about back in the 40s and 50s. I was born in 41. So it was close to being an agricultural community, but it wasn't an agricultural community because it was a city. So mm -hmm. my father was a solicitor. My mother uh, had been to university, which is unusual for mm. women back in the 30s. Mm. Um, but she had, and she became, she did occasional French teaching afterwards. She had done a degree in French and English. And what was the, the, the neighborhood where you grew up in? What, are you, what were your sort of, I guess, what are your strongest memories of that? It was on the main road going from Limerick to the west of Ireland. Um, it was a 10 minute walk into town. And if we didn't walk it, we used bicycles all the time to get in and out. So I used a bike to get into school. And sometimes it was early because one was a, an altar boy. So being an altar boy, you had to get in for the eight o'clock mass sometimes, which didn't suit me because I wasn't an early riser. Mm -hmm. Still haven't. Was the, the church and church life still a big part of life? In oh, Ireland? Church, church was absolutely a big part of life. Yeah. Um, I went to a Catholic school, went to a Jesuit school. But before that, my first school was three minutes walk from the house run by Salesian nuns. And I have, I have good memories of that. It was peaceful. And then I went to Crescent College, which was 15 minutes walk because I was at the top of town. And... Um, uh, ten minute bicycle ride. What would you say would be some of your best memories from your school days? What stands out? Probably going to the seaside, which was 40 miles away. 
My father used to play golf every Sunday. And uh, we, there were three boys in my family. I was the middle boy. And um, the Hinch was about 40 miles away, which is about an hour's drive back in the early days, a bit longer, perhaps a bit longer than an hour. And my father would play golf and we would go down and go down to the beach, walk along the beach, occasionally even go for a swim. That's my best memory of, of uh, growing up in Limerick, because not being in Limerick is being in the <laughs> What was the beach like in Ireland? I imagine, and I've been to that sort of around that area of Ireland, but it's quite different from what we would visualise as a beach in Australia. You know, in this case, probably not. Okay. Uh, the Hinch is one of the top surf uh, beaches in Europe. The wind comes right in from the west and gets big swells and so on. And uh, it's a big beach, probably is about at least a kilometre long. There were two places, Lehinch and Kilkee. Kilkee was 60 miles from Limerick, but that was more of a bigger fishing village. And we used to go down there every year. We, the family would rent a, a cottage from one of the fisher folk. No idea where they went. They went to parents or grandparents or something for the, for the month of June. And we would... Half of Limerick would seem to be there. That was that was one of the memories we had. I had, because we if you if you if you go to the, the seaside is always a good place to have a have fun when you're seven, eight, ten years old. And so, when you um, progressed to high school uh how how was high school different apart from being a bit further away it was a boys only school and the teachers were either priests or people who were becoming priests with a small smattering of of uh, lay teachers but you know that was the 50s so it was a different world nowadays my my brother was a principal of one of those one of the jesuit schools in ireland for a while and uh, when i go and visit him that that school is next door to where he is now, and uh, he talks about how there isn't any Jesuit priest in the school in, in some of the mm. schools now because the schools are run by committees by uh, parent and organisations, uh, and so the whole world has changed completely uh, in that regard. For me, having priests around and talking with them was, was standard practice, but I'd say nowadays would not be the same anything like it yeah I mean I get I gather that's pretty similar in um, other traditionally Catholic pretty countries yes. as well yes yes as, yeah. so education has become a bit more um, secular yes a lot more secular the country itself has become a lot more secular was there any particular uh, teacher or um, priest that was particularly influential or that you took particular notice of probably two I just had a flash in in the school, you you felt free enough to talk to the priest at any time. I mean, I remember in my second last year, or last year in school, going into the assembly hall, the concert hall, which is part of the school, and my Greek teacher. I learned, I did a bit of classical Greek for my sins, and uh, he was playing the piano. He was a very good pianist, and uh, he was playing some Beethoven sonata or something on the piano on there. And when he had finished, I said to him, Father, did you go to the concert last night? And he said, no, he said, they were playing that barbarian Tchaikovsky. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, that memory 
is good because it showed that being we were able to be friendly with priests, but also that very some of them were extremely conservative. Mm. Uh, he was talking. I was talking about a concert that the Radio Air and Symphony Orchestra, the equivalent of RTSO, had had come from Dublin down to play and played in the one of the big cinemas. And I had gone to the concert with my mother. I thought it was terrific. But Tchaikovsky, Fifth Symphony was not. Uh, it was a barbarian as far as because an awful lot of people in the classical world think that any music written before 19 any before 1840 is, uh. or after 1840 is just not music and the other guy there was a, a, a one of the lay teachers we had in our last year in school was a fellow called Owen Moore and Owen was a very good actor mm-hmm. uh, he used to play and stuff and he he, he made he made the English class. We, we, we did Hamlet, I remember, our last year. As a result, I can still recall whole chunks of Hamlet uh, and recite them if, if, if you really want to hear, but uh, I won't. But he was, he was very influential on me and, and the importance of the English language and the words that we use. Your, your latter high school years, did you develop any sort of plan or, or idea of what you wanted to do with your life in the future? No. I, in fact, it was, it was a, at the time, back in the, back in the 50s, in many ways, people didn't have much of a clue how do you get boys or girls into a, into a, a channel that suits them. And uh, I was unfortunate or fortunate in, in a way. I was jumped about 10 of us out of our class was jumped from third year into fifth year. We skipped fourth year. Uh, we were told because we were so smart, we were going okay. to be, And f- looking back and I think, well, perhaps it was that they had too many students in one class and not enough in the other. So who, who knows? But we took it for granted that what they were telling us was true. We were, we were clever. Yeah. So we went into with boys who were a year older than us. And as a result, I was just 17 when I left school. And I was probably a fairly young 17, so I didn't have a clue what was out there. Because I was from a professional family, my father had his own small business as a, a solicitor. My family probably thought, well, we're not, there's no university in Limerick at the time. So if I wanted to go to university, I had to go to Dublin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think we could afford to go. They, they couldn't afford to put me there. My brother was at the time going through university to become a solicitor to okay. take over my father's business or to become into to go into it. So um, the only profession seemed to be open was accountancy. So I went into that. I, I could have done something connected to photography. I had my own okay. dark room in my house, and I was a reasonably competent photographer. And uh, but. What would I, how would I become that? There didn't seem to be any avenue to become mm-hmm. a photographer. There was a local paper, and I perhaps could have done that, but that was very much a kind of a, I suppose, a working class job as a photographer at, at that time. And I could have become a, perhaps a journalist because my English standard was pretty high. So I, I could do that, but hey, profession is there, it's open, go into it, easy. So I did. So where did you do um, your training for that? The training was almost non-existent. Oh, right. You sign up for a five-year apprenticeship, basically, Uh to a chartered accountant. And um, if the chartered accountant felt like he'd teach you some stuff, but you just learned on the job otherwise. Okay. 
I think we might have had, I might have had five or less classes of any kind in the five years I was there. It was the sort of stuff that's good for people who, who are lighthouse keepers. Mm-hmm. Do it from books. Yeah. Being qualified in that, I was able to, I initially was able to go to Canada. No, first to London for a few years, as I used to tell people who asked. Oh, I went there to learn the language, but then went to Canada, then came to Australia. So at what, at what stage did you go to the UK? In my early 20s, I was, after my doing my articles, as they call them, with a chartered accountant, I worked for six months as, a, as an accountant at an industrial business in Shannon Airport, which is about 15 miles away. And uh, after six or nine months there, I thought, oh, I really need to do something else. So I thought, go and see if I can get a job in London. So I did, got one. And what was what was the impetus for that? Was it just that London was some place that you knew about? I was, I was always a traveler. Mm-hmm. From 19, at the age of 19, I hitchhiked through France okay. into Italy. At the age of 20, I went to a rail trip around France. 21, it is somewhat similar. So I was, by the time I was finished my articles after five years, I had been, uh, I'd been all around a number of countries in Europe, but I hadn't been to England. Oh, all right. uh, I used to fly to France because it was a cheap flight from Dublin to Cherbourg. And I decided, well, I really would like to go somewhere else. So I could go to Dublin. But I thought, yeah, it's just as easy to go to London. So I went to London. I was in London. Or in fact, I was in London in the 60s when London was swinging London. Mm-hmm. I learned all about it after I left. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I went over to London initially because I wanted to test out the travel industry. As I, as I told you, I, I began foreign travel early, hitchhiking around France and Italy when I was 19 in three weeks. I remember coming back, I ended up at home with two and sixpence in my pocket. So, and I worked out back then that if you want to travel, all you need is a passport and the sentence that begins, why not? So I wanted to get into the travel business itself because I thought, oh, if I get into the travel business, I'd do an awful lot more travel. Unfortunately, business and travel for fun are not quite the same thing. So I got a job in London very quickly and I went over to London, stayed there for a few years, but I switched from one travel agency, which was a small one, into a bigger one, doing accountancy work. And it seemed like, well, it was, it was a start. But after a while, I figured, well, I don't think this is actually going to work. The theory of connecting travel agencies with actual enjoyment of travel didn't quite work for me. So I went out looking for what else to get into. And I got into technology, basically. Early days of of computers, so systems analyst with ICT, which is International Computers and Tabulators, the English equivalent of IBM. And is that when you moved to Birmingham? That's when I moved to Birmingham uh, for a year. Worked at, actually worked with another company, National Cash Register, with, on the accounting machine side, and then moved back to London and worked with ICT. And at what point did you um, go to Canada? That was about the fourth year of being in England. England was going through some difficult times. 
apart from the fact that I was in London, as I may have told you before, but I was in London <coughs> during what uh, was known as the Swinging Sixties. Uh, as Mr. Cool Guy, I found out all about the Swinging Sixties after I left, which I think was one of the great sadnesses of my life. <laughs> you know, I don't have many regrets, but that's one of them, I think. But uh, I learned enough about computers in their early stages to be a systems analyst. But they had, in England, they had the, the pound had devalued, and the, there was a, a sense of ah, things are not going well in England in the late 60s. So I thought, where else do I go to? I could have gone to America, because lots of Irish go to America, but at the time, you were in danger of being drafted to go to Vietnam if you went to America as a migrant. So I decided, well, what about Canada? I spoke a bit of French, so I thought Montreal was a much more interesting city, being French and English, than Toronto, which is only English. So I decided, well, let's go and have a look at Canada. So I immigrated, became a landed immigrant, in Canada in 1968. Yeah, and what was Montreal like at the time? I, I gather it was it was a bit of a happening city. It was a very happening city. The year before, Expo 67, which was a big industrial commercial exhibition held every four years, I guess, in different around the world, uh, had been a big hit for Montreal at the time. It took years to pay it off, as they found out later with the Olympics, the same sort of thing. Uh, these things take a long time to pay off sometimes. But it was a good time to be in Canada. It was a, busy, a growing economy, positive. Weather was not so great. There was a lot of snow between November and March. But it's quite sunny in, uh, in the winter as well. So it was an interesting place to be. And I got a job within a couple of days with Rolls-Royce. They made air engines over there. And uh, I was a systems analyst for a year or so. Then I decided, I think I'd do better if I was, if I switched into my profession, into accountancy. So I, did, I got a job with an, an industrial company downtown. I like the idea of being downtown whenever I'm in a city. And uh, it went okay until three years later I decided to go to Bermuda. And how did that come about? I was getting a bit fed up with the weather of Montreal. The winters are hard, but it's a good city to be in. You know, there were, I knew people who didn't own overcoats because they never went out into the into the open air during the winter right. because the underground system was so effective, the underground okay. railways, metro, you had access to 42 restaurants or 27 films, cinemas, all that sort of stuff without going above ground. So there's a lot of good things happening in Montreal. But by the time the winter got to me, I had a problem in, in, with the weather and I thought, oh, I should really become an internal auditor with somebody like American Express, because I can go back into the idea of being in the travel business, go around to places around the world and be an auditor, very highly paid, relatively speaking, staying in expensive hotels, comfortable, not bad for a couple of years. I was offered the job, didn't take it, and somebody else offered me another job to go to Bermuda and live there and work for an insurance company. I'd never been to Bermuda, and I read up about it and learned about it and thought, this looks like it might not be a bad place to live. Semi-tropical, not tropical, north of the Caribbean, about 600 miles north of the Caribbean, nearest big city, New York, 
So I gave it a go. Stayed there three years uh, and re-immigrated to Montreal. I, I'm, a, I'm a serial migrant, I think. <laughs> yes. And what, and what was Bermuda like? Bermuda was very attractive. It's a nice, small island, colonial, so it had its problems. Total population around 60 or 70,000, of which probably 60% were black, 65% black. There was no, as far as, I, far as I could see, there was no racial problem. There was the usual colonial problem, because remember this was simply the early, very early 70s. And the whites basically ran the place. And uh, like, for example, my golf, the golf club I was a member of, as a, as a perk of my job, I got a membership of a golf course. There were no blacks in the, co in the club. And I found that very strange after Montreal, uh, which is a much more cosmopolitan place. Mm -hmm. but. The golf was good, the tennis was good, the sailing was very good, the swimming was very good, there were some lovely beaches, and everything was, it was easy to get around. But then after six months, for some reason or other, Uganda blew up. Idi Amin, actually just before Idi Amin took over, the president of Uganda wanted to change the, the subsidiary company of the company I was working for in Bermuda okay. into a half government-owned <coughs> organization. Mm -hmm. So. They said, well, we'd like to discuss this. And my boss was going to go and be the accountant in a small team to set up the company in Uganda. And he was declared persona non grata. He wasn't allowed to go because he was South African. And okay. at the time, South Africa was very apartheid. And so being a South African, he, wouldn't, he wasn't welcome in, in black Africa. So my boss, uh, my boss's boss said, yeah, do you want to go? I said, where, why? Why not? So I went to Uganda for five months and uh, stayed in Kampala, very interesting. Now that was tropical, but very interestingly tropical because it's spring-like in some ways. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a bit like Mexico City, it's about five or 6,000 feet above sea level. It was very interesting working with Indian, East Indians as they call themselves, blacks, whites. It was a very interesting place to be for a young, a young man who liked travel, until after about five months, Idi Amin decided to take over from the president. The president was in Singapore at a conference. So Idi Amin formed a coup. And uh, I was woken up in the middle of the night in the hotel I was staying in by the sound of tanks in the streets. Mm. Looked over, the, didn't know what was going on. I found out quite quickly what was going on. We were told, foreigners were told, it's nothing to do with you. No problem, go away, don't, nothing happening here, sort of thing. Uh, and it, it was true, they actually had, even though Idi Amin's story later becomes a bit more ugly, at the time he had pretty good, as the, he was head of the army, and he had pretty good control of the people. So we decided, my boss decided, uh, that he would ship his wife and children out, and I went with them two days later. When it first happened, I just heard the sound of a tank at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. I thought, what's going on? What sort of machinery is going around here at this time of the morning? Mm. Right downtown Kampala. And then I heard some shooting into distance. There was a, always a certain amount of background. There could have been occasionally background shooting, like once every couple of weeks or something, when somebody was having an argument or a, a gang raiding a liquor store or something out in an outside suburb. But 
this was serious shooting. And it turned out they were they were taking over the radio station. And the following morning, when things half of the people in the who were working in the hotel had disappeared into the bush because they weren't they didn't know what was happening and they might have been the wrong tribe because mm. these things were usually tribal. So uh, halfway during the morning that morning chief of police's house was blown up directly behind the hotel which was a little bit of a shake up a reminder that this was serious and that's when we the news started to filter through that this is a real coup and probably not a good idea to hang around too long we drove one of the the driver of the, the chauffeur of my boss's car uh, he was the only one who had a car but he, it was safer to have somebody local drive you around and that guy drove the, my boss's wife and two children and me to Nairobi, which was hundreds of miles away. But we went through about three or four checkpoints. I must say, having a 16-year-old with a rifle sticking his rifle in the window of the car was an experience I wouldn't look forward to again. Mm. decided to go back to Montreal, I was going to change the world completely, mm -hmm. my world. I was going to do something different. I wasn't going to stick as an accountant. And the first thing to do, I thought, was, I have never read all of Shakespeare, so why don't I go and do that at a university? So I decided to do an English degree. So I, I sort of semi-retired at about age 32 or something, and um, did, a t did an English degree, an honors English degree, in two years by doing overload of courses in the summer. And I did part-time jobs. Like I worked in a bar for a short while. I did a bit of teaching. I taught accountancy in McGill University for a few semesters uh, at basic level. I could, I could teach the basic stuff. I wouldn't have done any of the serious stuff. But uh, I got, got by quite well in Montreal doing, going back into a different world. And then after two years, I decided to uh, set up my own business as a headhunter based on the business of my business experience of being an accountant and what accountants do and how people hire accountants and how they should hire accountants. And I ran that business for five years as a headhunter in Montreal, quite successfully. And then at, at what point did you decide to go to Australia and why? It's, it's all got to do with travel and, and uh, weather, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I seem to adapt better to weather under different circumstances. Montreal hadn't changed its weather pattern. Mm -hmm. Winters were still tough. So the temptation to f go to a better climate was always there. But I was, I was enjoying Montreal. I was doing reasonably well. But I, Palomine had come back from living in Australia. And he had, in fact, worked in the record industry and he was full of stories about being in Sydney when the Beatles went there. Because, mm -hmm. of course, being in the record industry, his, his company actually did the Beatles. So he was full of stories about being with the Beatles in Sydney and how Sydney was a great town and all the rest of it. So I thought, ah, maybe I should go and have a look. So I decided. And Montreal was getting a bit dodgy because there was a struggle between the English Canadians and the French Canadians. Mm -hmm. uh, French Canada was becoming a bit in Quebec. Montreal is the capital of Quebec, a major city anyway. And there were 
the occasional violence in the uh, background. And I thought, this is not very comfortable. So I thought, well, maybe I should, maybe it's time to move to Toronto for a while. So as I told people for a while, I'm actually going to Toronto by way of Sydney. And I just never completed the journey. I decided to change my career completely, to try and meld in some way my two backgrounds of accountancy, business, and the English degree, my playing my light, my enjoyment of words. I was be I'd been a big reader since four years of age. So I thought, well, I should be able to do something based on documents that business produces like annual reports, like marketing documents, like letters to government or like letters from by government people. So I knocked on a few doors and said, hey, you know, can I write your annual report? And this basic response I got for a lot from a lot of people was, well, not really. Can you do anything else? So I explored what else I could do, what they needed. So I, and I found within a short while that I was able to do other things. And uh, I did get an annual report through somebody who I met back then and knew him when he moved to uh, Hobart some many years later, Leo Schofield. He had just sold out from his advertising agency in Sydney and he set up a public relations company. And uh, I saw in some trade magazine that he had done this. So I sent him a letter and uh, the letter basically said, I'm in the uh, translation business, translating the language of business people into the ordinary language of people who need to know something. So uh, I had worked on the letter that I sent him and uh, I got a letter back saying, I only replied to amusing letters, come and see me. <laughs> so I did and I got my first job as for writing uh, an annual report because, and it was with a an, uh, an investment bank. And so I had never written an annual report at this stage, but I wrote it, uh, interviewed all the top people in a week, wrote it over the weekend and presented it on Monday. And they said, this is extraordinarily fast. I didn't realize you couldn't do it, but I did it. <laughs> um, and so, because people knew how difficult it was to get all the people together and to extract the story. Mm -hmm. uh, but. It was a, a, an eye-opener for me too because it showed what could be done mm -hmm. and so I was able to sell that on, that, that concept. Well, I can do the annual report quickly and if, uh, reasonably effectively. I was always interested in clear language. I had done, uh, in my English degree, I'd looked at things like plain English, but I was more interested in, in, in uh, workable English rather than anything, the plain part, the plain is automatic to me. Uh, and I, in my letter, I think I'd used the word, I was in the explaining business, which is what I think, I didn't like the word public relations, but the explanation business, the explaining business, is where you allow, you help people to put their best foot forward, to say what the, what the what's most important from their point of view, to let people know. So public relations is a bad image mm. in some ways, but in, if it's done properly, it's simply explaining. Yeah. So giving people a chance to be themselves and to express what they need to do in a way that makes it understandable to the people they want to influence. 
as a result of that kind of work, I segued into over the years, I segued into a little bit of teaching, a little bit of training, uh, and I ended up coaching people one-on-one -on, -one on how to be more effective in their writing, whatever they were doing. I've done it for banks in, in Sydney, and then when I came down here, I did it with government bodies, with industrial bodies, with whatever. When people had to do, had to write as part of their job, I could help them to do it better. And so what brought you to Tasmania? I was living in Sydney, had lived in Sydney for 20 years, and Sydney was getting too hot. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew that there was climate change, which was perfectly obvious to me. When I first went there, there were about a half dozen days in the year which were uncomfortably hot, really seriously uncomfortably hot. By the time I left, there were 30 mm. instead of the six. So, you know, to me, that's for climate change. I don't care what this, the details are, that's the big picture. And my doctor had said, yeah, with your chest, you'd be better off somewhere else. Too polluted, it was too young, too noisy. And I thought, I want somewhere different, a bit quieter. And I decided that I, I used to, I'd been to, to Hobart a number of times. I'd been on a few different holidays to Tasmania. So I was quite comfortable down here. I, it also had similarities to Ireland. So mm -hmm. I felt comfortable from that point of view as well. So I thought, ah, give it a go. So I, it was between Newcastle and, um, and Hobart. And I, oh, you made the right choice. I made the right choice, absolutely. <laughs> Newcastle, I was talking to somebody from Newcastle, said, yeah, it's got hotter. Mm. Uh, and also, I really wanted to go somewhere that had a good musical, classical musical, uh, environment. Okay. So I told people, I wrote an article in fact for 40 degrees south when I, shortly after I arrived which started off something about uh, I like to see the expression of my friends faces in Sydney when they when I give them the answer to their question what took you to Hobart of all places and I answer the nightlife. <laughs> <laughs> Not many people would have said that. And I proved it because, okay. because my interest was in classical music and classical music here is phenomenal mm. for the size of the place and it's accessible. Back in those days, you could park outside, the, you could park outside where the concert was going on. Now you have to park all of two, two blocks away. But uh, there was a very good conservatorium of music which had a lot of activity and a lot of concerts. Uh, and the TSO, of course, is fantastic. And there's a chamber music environment and there are two other orchestras. Oh, yeah, this is lots of it. Like, What were your first impressions of Tasmania after living in Sydney for so long? Well, I, I had been down here a number of times on holidays and yeah. trips of one kind or another. And I knew it wasn't perfect, but it had a lot of things going for it. It was a very civilised place. It was human scale. Mm -hmm. which was very important to me at that time when I came here, that I, I didn't feel overwhelmed by anything. I was able to merge in quite quickly into, into the feeling of being here. Rent a, rent, could rent a place very quickly, uh, bought a house within a year of being here, and having the city so close to the countryside, and to the bush and the, uh, the beaches and the rest of it, so were you doing the same, you were doing much the same work when you arrived here? Yeah, 
basically, I, I talked to, I, I did work with a number of um, graphic designers to, as a, as a copywriter. I did work for the TSO. I did work for government bodies with their, and uh, eventually uh, stopped doing that and, and just focused on doing uh, occasional, as I came into retirement age, kind of doing occasional one-on-one -on -one coaching, which I found, well, I had done it in Sydney a little bit, but I just did more of it down here. It seemed like there was a, there was a need for that kind of thing in some larger organizations, either in government or in private industry. People were aware that they could do better, and so they needed some help. So I'd, either I'd help them with a document uh, or help them in general to change their approach so that they felt more comfortable doing it. So this the one-on-one -on -one coaching was also -on about improving people's, helping them improve their writing skills. Very specifically, yes. very specifically. And occasionally, I'd, I'd, I remember once one guy called me who had worked with him in a government body, and he joined another government body based in Canberra, and he called me up one day and said, look, uh, I've got somebody in New Zealand uh, in our associate firm. Could you help them do uh, write better? So uh, on the phone. And I said, no, I won't do it on the phone, but I could do it on Skype. So I did, I worked with a few of their people doing exactly what I did here on Skype. And I found it was quite amazing how it could work. Modern technology could could uh, bridge the gap. I couldn't do it on the phone because I, there was no eye contact. Yeah. But I could do it on, on Skype. And that was interesting change for me to, to, uh, to move from one-on-one -on -one sitting down like we're sitting here. And uh, do so, I could. They would send me their copy, their documents, and we would talk about it and work from there. Classical music's obviously been a bit of a theme in our conversation so yeah. far. Yeah. So, where did where did this um, where did your interest in in the begin? My father was a pianist. Uh, he'd put himself through his studies to become a solicitor by having um, a dance band for things like hunt balls and f formal balls and stuff like that in Limerick uh, mm -hmm. or parties. So he played the piano regularly at home. So I was used to having people come into the house. He might play for a concert that was going on in, in a theatre in, in town charity concert or some other concert and he would accompany singers one guy I remember was a fellow called Neil Harris or Noel Harris Noel was Richard Harris's brother okay. the actor and I caught up with him shortly after I went to, to Sydney he came when he came to do <coughs> Camelot I went and saw him after the show and we had a, mm -hmm. in fact he, he, he drove me home in his uh, or his chauffeur drove me home in his uh, chauffeured uh, uh, Rolls Royce because I lived around the corner from where the hotel he was staying in right. <laughs> but uh, it's nice to have somebody you know I didn't know him but I knew his his brothers and my father used to play the piano for one of one of the brothers uh, who, would, who, would, who was a good tenor so there was always music around and I learned how to play the piano a little bit when I was a young fella I just it just stuck when I was going places I'd go to concerts in London when I was there that's where it went. I 
I'm a slow learner, as you can tell from my accent. <laughs> I, I haven't picked up much of an Australian accent in 40 years here. So I, I realize some things don't change. When I go back to Ireland, they say, you've got an Australian accent. And I think, <laughs> who, who you, what are you hearing? <laughs> Which isn't there. But the, I might use two or three words differently. But yes, I, you know, unless you really work at it, you don't lose your core. And your core is created in your first 20 or 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, Perhaps I've become more adult through through the rest of that period, but uh, it's built on that foundation. So when I go back to Ireland, I feel very comfortable indeed. Yeah. But then when I come back to Hobart, I feel very comfortable indeed. And when you go back to Ireland, is there anything that you sort of maybe look forward to or um, that you experience there that you can't experience here? No. Uh, basically... Uh, I, except perhaps just the being surrounded by people who who sound Irish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is a difference. Uh, and I suppose that does <clears throat> uh, kind of touch centres in my body that uh, uh, go back to my childhood. And f- from that point of view, it's not that I don't have... A similar feeling here, but they're for Australians mm-hmm. uh, or for foreigners, because uh, I live in a multicultural environment, and I'm comfortable with that. In all my travels, I still like going to somewhere new, or somewhere different, and uh, I enjoy being in a different environment with different kind of different coloured people around. Yeah. So uh, when I go back to Ireland, there's still a mixture of the old Irish and the new people coming in. And sometimes it's very amusing for me to, to, see, an Irish, uh, to see a black guy and uh, have a word with him t- and he talks with a Dublin accent. And you mentioned about liking to hear the, uh, the familiar accents again. Yes, yes. Is it just about the, the accents and the accents sort of triggering a memory or is it about sort of the atmosphere that creates? It's just the atmosphere it creates. It's not, uh, it doesn't necessarily, no, I don't, I don't find it triggers memories, mm-hmm. but it, it may do at a core level, uh, at a gut level. You know, the, um, I'm responding to it without being aware that that's what I'm responding to, or yeah. that's what it reminds me of. But I'm not conscious of the reminder, but I feel it. Mm-hmm.